Want to drive greater success in social commerce? With Deloitte's latest creator economy research, you can. After surveying over 500 creators and 500 brands, our insights are helping CMOs and marketing teams harness the power of content creators. And not only that, but how to do it well. See for yourself by visiting cmo.deloitte.com today. What's the first brand you remember making an impact on you as a young girl? You know, my older sister drank Tab Cola. And I remember her sitting in her back porch drinking a Tab. And I kind of thought, that's so cool. (laughs) So Tab, if you remember that brand. I remember a marketing director at Procter & Gamble loved that brand so much. She would buy cases. (laughs) And stack it in her office. I thought, well, that's that's a fan. <laughs> that's a super fan. So why did you love Tab? I think it was something to do with, it was my older sister. It signaled a coolness because she was an older sister, six and a half years older than I. And I aspired to be more like her at the time. And it, there was something niche about it. It wasn't Diet Pepsi. It wasn't Diet Coke. It was, it was more akin to a diet pepper. <laughs> so she's sort of staking out her own territory. So is your older sister still cool to you? <laughs> I don't know about that, but we are good <laughs> friends. <laughs> Hi, I'm Jim Stengel, and I help major brands find their purpose and activate it, and the profits follow. For seven years, I was the global marketing officer for Procter & Gamble, where I oversaw the marketing of hundreds of brands. You may not know it, but the CMOs, the chief marketing officers of all of your favorite brands, are trying to connect you with your favorite products and services through purpose. And on this show, I delve into how they do it. My guest today in the CMO podcast is Lara Balash, the EVP, general manager, and chief marketing officer of Intuit, the $9.6 billion in revenue financial software firm. Intuit's brands include QuickBooks, TurboTax, and Mint. In 2021, Intuit acquired Credit Karma and MailChimp. My guest, Lara, has a lot to say about leadership and brand building. She has worked at the consultancy Profit, General Mills, Gap, Nike, Visa, and most recently as a VP at Amazon, responsible for North American consumer marketing and worldwide prime marketing. Lara has been at Intuit since 2018. Its stock price has more than tripled since then. We'll learn about that and a lot more in this conversation with Lara Balash. Lara, welcome to the CMO Podcast. I have known you across a few roles and a few events and, and meetings, and you seem to be very, very happy in this role. <laughs> is that a fair observation? It is a fair observation, Jim. And yes, we have known each other across multiple roles. Well, you seem to be beaming, and we're going into a new year, 2022, and I'd like you to reflect a little bit on 2021 and this amazing year you and your company have had. And I'd like you to reflect on, in this amazing year, what was the most vivid experience at Intuit for you? So many amazing things about this year. You know, when I think about the backdrop of the year, the idea that we would all still be experiencing COVID-19 would Mm. not have hit my mind. And so with that as context or or a backdrop, um, that would be the number one 
uh, just surprise of the year. Secondly, the fact we were able to do incredible announcements that truly not only pushed momentum on the company, but we're we're representing the momentum we have. And that is uh, the announcement of Intuit Dome, um, which is our uh, 23-year deal with the Clippers, um, Mm -hmm. as well as just the, importantly, acquisition of MailChimp. Uh, so we've had big announcements in a year where we were still all working in a remote environment. That's crazy. So what are you looking forward to next year? You've had this amazing year, acquisitions, uh, the Clipper Stadium, into a Dome. I mean, your revenue is crazy. Your stock price is nuts. So what are you looking forward to most in 2022? You know, all of these announcements, as I mentioned, are just uh, reflections of the momentum we've had in serving our customers and um, ultimately achieving our mission, which is powering prosperity for everyone in the world. And the the wonderful thing about that is every acquisition we've made, we've made the acquisition of Credit Karma before MailChimp. Mm-hmm. It has allowed us to serve our customer needs in the financial space even more. And what I would tell you is everything we're doing um, solves customer financial problems. And and to be able to take this momentum and truly serve our customers is what I'm absolutely excited about. So listen, I want to get into, you're already going here uh, on the year you've had and the business results, but I just want to reel off a few pieces of data for our listeners and, and get you to react to that. You are one of the hottest brands in the country, maybe the world right now. Stock price up 40% in the past six months, revenue up 52% in your latest quarter. You acquired MailChimp and Credit Karma, as you've talked about. You've gotten best places to work awards. Uh, You're developing new partnerships. So could you speak a bit about what is going on (laughs) in this culture, in this company? Open that up for us a little bit. What is going on that is generating this excitement and this momentum? Yeah. uh, Well, first of all, this is all happening in the backdrop of putting our employees first. So, and, um, and, you know, I have had, as we discussed, the uh, lucky fortune to have worked at lots of different brands, different companies over the years. And I have never seen a place uh, that puts their employees first like we do. So, I say that because we have true north goals for the company. We order them important in order of importance. Employees are the very first pillar of those goals, and we mean it. The second is our customer goals. The third is communities. So we have corporate responsibility community goals that are in our true north goals as a company. And then the last are shareholders. All important, but there is a reason for that order. So you take that, and then if you're taking that as your epicenter for everything you do and your your mission, which our mission is to power prosperity around the world, and that's your North Star, you know, everything comes off of that. And we really believe that that is our, our mission. It is not just walking, you know, it's not just talking the talk, it is walking the talk. From there, we have we we proclaimed five big bets as a company for growth, which were all centered in cu- customer problems, and so we shared those with the company, 
We also shared three bold goals. And we, again, we made them transparent to the company, all in service to supporting our customers. From there, that's ultimately how we decided to make those acquisitions because they helped meet those customer goals that were noted in those five big bets. And we constantly update our employees. And yes, this has happened during a pandemic. And so we've done that virtually. We've added town halls. The employee communication has been open and often. Uh, So absolutely, I would tell you the culture is what has driven the momentum full stop. Laura, could you talk a bit more about this employee culture at Intuit? Because I've known the, your company for quite some time. I've, I'm a customer of your company. What, what's the root of it? Where, I mean, many companies, especially now in, the, in these times of the great resignation and the great reset and all that stuff, everyone's trying to double down on their culture and making their employees feel genuinely feel like they are valued and they are the most important asset of the company. Easier said than done. So where is this? How did this get in your DNA? What What is the root of it? And how have you kept it so yeah. front and center for the, yeah, for the organization? It, it's such a great question, Jim. And it's one I've asked, again, having worked at some of the best brands in the world and seeing you can feel it. You can feel it uh, in your first meeting at the company where we respect one another and we um, unpack thinking, we take people along, we don't, um, you know, allow for any sharp elbows in the company. Um, I, it goes back to the very beginning of the company. Um, our founder, Scott Cook, founded the company 38 years ago. He and his wife were sitting at the kitchen table and they were discussing how ridiculous it seemed to be to have to balance a checkbook. Therein lies a customer problem. From there, they thought we we need to address this customer problem of balancing a checkbook. And that's how Quicken came to life. And from there, um, everything they did was always about the customer and the empathy around the customer. And if you start with that customer back, you start to apply that to your employees. What do they care about? What gets them up in the morning? That empathy, uh, what we call design for delight thinking, design thinking, that is also how we think about serving our employees. Fast forward, we've had CEOs throughout the years, not that many. Brad Smith was the CEO that we had before, our current CEO, Sasan Gadarzi. Um, all of our CEOs tend to come from within, so we do significant succession planning And Brad Smith was known to be a terrific leader, putting employees first. And now we have Sasan Gadarzi who does the same thing. So it's it's in the DNA from the founding of the company. And we are maniacal about supporting our employees. Maniacal. What are your personal rituals, Lara, in serving your employees and putting employees first? What could others learn from how you spend your time and where you focus? Yeah, I... It it is very much in the same vein of design for delight um, thinking and what we call follow me homes, which now we do over iPhone. But in the back in the day, we used to follow our customers to their houses and watch them interact with our products in a deep ethnography uh, driven way. You know, I, I trying to listen 
not just hear, but listen, what is going on with them. Uh, Ask them personally, how are they doing in their lives? What is happening at home? Those are key tenants, frankly, to all of our leadership principles, but that piece of always starting a one-to-one with asking how people are really doing uh, is, is, is key because no one is just the work person. Everyone is a full person. And we talk about bringing your full authentic self to work and we mean it. And so that means what, <laughs> what disaster did you have today when you're dropping your kid off at school? Like it's okay to talk about it. That that's real. So I would say that would be the thing that I try to bring to the table, even when we're moving with speed and velocity to stay in front of the marketplace. You just said the company is 38 years old, so it's not a new company. You're, what, $9.6 billion in sales, probably soon to reach $10 billion. What's your counsel to the CMOs who are listening and other mature companies? And you are posting numbers that a startup company would be posting. So what's your advice to generate this kind of energy, this kind of momentum? What's been your leadership team's playbook? You talked about the five big bets. That's probably at the center of it. But just unpack that a bit with us in terms of how to keep a mature company this much on fire. One word, reinvention. Uh, The marketplace is moving faster than you are. Your competitors are moving faster than you are. Your customers are moving faster than you are. You have to reinvent. Uh, We go back all the way to you would buy TurboTask TurboTax on a disk. Uh, We went from DOS to now we're in the cloud. So reinvent and ignite. You got to build energy on the trajectory you're on. And and as um, I love to quote our our CEO, Sasan Ghadarzi, who's been such such a force to having us think big is, you know, if you shoot for the ceiling, you're just going to hit the ceiling. (laughs) But if you shoot Mm -hmm. for the stars, gosh, even if you don't get there, what a wonderful way to go past the ceiling. And so the idea of thinking big and swinging big and and reinventing and, and igniting are key. What would you say is the key to success for today's CMO? If you said data, you wouldn't be the only one. At Deloitte, however, we believe data is only half of the equation. The other half, story. Because data is the language of business, but story is the language of humans. And we believe the most successful CMOs know how to harness the power of both data and story. To learn more about Deloitte's CMO program and how we can help today's CMOs succeed, visit cmo.deloitte.com. Tell us about the process to get to the five big bets. How did you arrive at those? And, you know, you can share them if you'd like, but that's not as important as how you got there in terms of learning for others. Yeah. So, so you know, we, we serve a range of customers. We have consumers. Then we have consumers who are uh, devoted to going out and making something for themselves. So they're self-employed. And then we have small business owners who are small business owners. And then those businesses grow and they become mid-market sized. And so we have this array of consumers. And what the team did, the leadership team working with their teams is understanding the customer financial problems, what do they need? And then ultimately, 
there were five six-pagers, so akin to the Amazon uh, Mm -hmm. six-pager approach, that were written that were customer back to further support their needs. And those six-pagers were done to then make these six, six big bets. Those six big bets were shared, of course, at the leadership level, but then at the most leadership level down, so the senior vice president level, and then across really the company. Um, And then since then, we have continued to always, at every state of the company, which happens every quarter, update the entire company on where we are with those. So that it really, the process to answer your question went back to the customer. Mm -hmm. It was all customer back. Where is the customer now? Just one example was unlocking smart money decisions was big bet number three, which was our customers had Mint and they had TurboTax, which are two great personal finance offerings, one to do your taxes and one to, you know, ultimately have a better understanding of who you are um, financially from from a cash flow perspective and the like. But what we understood was, wow, these customers need access to great loan offerings. They need to understand their credit score very easily. And that's where Credit Karma came to light. And so you start to see where by having that big bet, that's actually how Credit Karma Mm -hmm. became such a clear answer. Uh, So that process of going customer back is exactly how we got there. Another example would be um, one of the things that we knew was that with TurboTax, as an example, and even QuickBooks, sometimes, even though these, these softwares, uh, software offerings are fantastic, you're doing your software, but you still need a little help and that we could offer experts through an online, uh, easy access way to help. And so that en- ended up being the uh, big bet number two, which is offering experts uh, virtually still using the power of AI and ML to support their needs, but offering virtual experts through big bet number two. So you can see how these things all started customer back. And that was a great ad campaign, by the way, you did on the, on the experts. Very cheeky. So you've mentioned the acquisitions a couple times. You made two big ones last year, maybe more, but you made two big ones. What did you learn this year, Lara, in, in the acquisition space? Because these seem to have been handled very, very, very well. So what did you learn as a, as a senior officer at the company about making these work as hard as they seem to be working for you? I know it's early days, but they seem to have gone very well. Yeah, great question. Acquisitions are never taken lightly. And um, we have taken great care in the acquisitions. The first criteria, you know, of course, they were meeting the needs that we had as a company as defined in the big bets. Additionally, the idea that Culturally, we knew these companies would be a fit, full stop, critically important. Um, We have had opportunities to do other deals (laughs) that we did not do because they were not a cultural fit. And so you have to feel good culturally or you're going to be on your back foot from day one. Then the idea of 
truly unpacking the why in the acquisition, not only for your Intuit employees, but also for the, the company being acquired. Because the company being acquired is thinking, wait a minute, you, know, you may have an employee that joined that company because they wanted to be part of an independent company. So truly unpacking that for both, both the company acquired and Intuit employees. And then the third third critical piece of this has been leaning into acceleration versus integration. We're taking on that company to make us better, to support our customers and accelerate their growth, not add bureaucracy and slow them down. If anything, we want to learn from the speed and the agility that that company is going to showcase because they've been smaller and leaner and velocity has fueled them. So I would say those three things. I love that. Acceleration versus integration. What lesson, what one lesson have you learned from either one of those companies, Lara, about speed, agility, customer centricity, leadership? Oh, you know, just, I would tell you, um, both companies learned a ton, not only from their leaders and in Ken Lin, who has, who, who founded Credit Karma and, and Ben Chestnut, who founded MailChimp. But the idea that they could see the benefit Intuit could bring, and frankly, what they would bring to us, but that one plus one would equal three, and that they embraced that, I, I give them full credit. Um, they both have been incredibly humble as, as leaders who have had significant success, uh, both of them in their own rights. And they have not ever in any way been <laughs> haughty or arrogant to the mm-hmm. fact that we, we bought their companies. So that humbleness and how important that is. Let's talk about your role as EVP and CMO. You've been CMO since 2018. And in 2020, your role was significantly expanded to include GM of the strategic partner group at Intuit. And you also look over corporate responsibility, which includes a lot, DEI, climate, several job initiatives. That's a big remit. So Lara, how do you manage it all? <laughs> uh, another great thing that you learn well through watching the great leaders at Intuit is prioritization and unpacking that prioritization with your teams, uh, which I do at the start of every fiscal year. I let them know uh, where I'm going to be spending my time and the percentage of my time. And, you know, that will vary year by year based on what's happening in the marketplace, what's happening with customers. And so um, that is a huge part of what I do is just constant prioritization and be clear with my team so that they know why I'm focusing in one area versus another. You know, what's interesting, Jim, is having corporate responsibility um, as part of the broaden remit that I got having the general manager um, of the strategic partner group added to my remit. It has been incredibly complementary to the marketing and communications part of my role. A lot of what companies are focusing on today is purpose. We are very lucky to have always had powering prosperity around the world as our purpose uh, or mission. And that mission is authentic. You know, it's when it's not authentic is when you, the customer knows they'll figure it out. Now, 
as you lean into getting very authentic in your marketing and purpose-driven, which you have to do today, we've all learned that, having corporate responsibility where we are focused on job creation, job readiness, climate change, things that we're uniquely set up to be able to address has been incredible because I can stand those up through my go-to-market efforts. And I am that much closer to that agenda because it's in my team. So it's been very fortuitous. So tell us about the strategic partner group. What is the work of that and how is that related to your CMO responsibilities? Yeah, so we do quite a few partnerships. We're an open platform. And so, for example, if you use our Mint app, you have your financial institution information that's that data in so you can see your full financial picture no matter what banking relationship you have. Apple Card, et cetera. And the financial that the strategic partner team that I have runs all of those partnerships with all the financial institutions, the payment providers, and then big enterprise partners that have a strategic uh, play for us. And it's one plus one equals three for us and them. So Google, Facebook, Equifax, um, the list goes on. We also, though, play a role in taking relationships and also feeding them to the right business unit. So if there is a possibility to do a business deal with a company that is really great for our QuickBooks business, my team will ensure that they get connected to the right people in the business unit. So it's it's horizontal and vertical, <laughs> which a lot of things are today in all of our worlds where we have to live and move in teams of teams and move horizontally almost more than we move vertically. I want to come back to your prioritization point. You have a big remit. You're very clear on your priorities, percentage of time spent. Give us a bit more of an idea of what that looks like. How many, for example, how many priorities would you work on in a year? And how do you know in advance what percentage of time you're going to spend? How does that change throughout the year? So what could we learn from you in how you set up your time? Sure. Um, So on the marketing and communication side, as an example, uh, every year I set five priorities. And when I first started at the company, I did a listening tour and those five, five priorities were conceived by what I heard, but also I was able to work with my marketing and communications leadership team from across the company that I had assembled to vet them, get their hands on them. You know, those five priorities we agreed were the priorities. Of those five, usually it's 80-20 and uh, 80 for the first three and 20% for the last two. It doesn't mean they're not important, but it, it is those priorities that serve as the anchor. They also become input goals to our Uber outcome goals. And so that is how we stay prioritized. And we coach our teams to say, if your activities are not mapping to the priorities, then you need to step back and ask yourself, should I really be working on that? I was in a job similar to yours. There's so much coming at you from the outside. And so, you know, you're in the danger of letting your inbox control your outbox. 
how do you stay disciplined on these five priorities and your percentage of time? Because there's so many, many other things that could get your attention. I'd be lying to tell you that I'm good at it. I am not. And, you know, also when you have communications, as an example, your day can shift yeah, pretty quickly yep. based on a, on a media event or um, even a, you know, a disaster, a natural disaster, which unfortunately we've had our share of them. And, you know, in today's world, the employee really wants to get involved. And so, and that's important to us. Um, I, you know, I keep a sticky note on my computer screen. It was on my desk before. Now it's on my computer screen that has the five priorities. Um, and I remind myself the minute I start, kind of flickering around and looking at my inbox and Slack. And to your point, you're getting a lot of outside in, inside in commentary. Mm -hmm. Go back to the five priorities. I've heard you speak at length about how critical it is for every CMO to deeply, deeply understand the business, the P&L, to be extra close to the CFO, to be sure marketing efforts are hardwired to the business. Where, Laura, did you develop that conviction? You know, I, I think I, it definitely helped that I have an MBA, um, you know, and I, I went back to get an MBA to be more versed across all business functional areas. So without a doubt, the having an MBA forces you to think about the whole system. And, and in tech marketing, by the way, it you have to think in a system manner. Um, and then... Ultimately, just always understanding that marketing drives the business. If, if you lose sight in that and start chasing creative awards uh, just to get the award versus, hey, I'm going to get the award and I'm going to drive the business, uh, you're, you're, you're on a slippery slope. And today, I don't think you have an excuse either because of the full funnel we have at our fingertips that is going to drive your agenda, right? And so um, what I would tell you is it, there's no one event I can point to, but a constant view to, I need to know what action I take drives a reaction, like I said earlier, we have input goals that ladder to outcome goals. If the input goals don't lead to the outcome goals, I don't want to do the input goal. It, and it's probably every single job I've had, I've had to know what am I driving toward or I, I feel lost. How do you inculcate that in your people and how you recruit and how you train and how you develop your organization? We spend a lot of time on that and into it. In fact, the fifth priority, not that it's not the least important, I call it the foundational priority, is growing, maintaining, and attracting the best marketers and communicators in the world. And in that, we have learning modules that we uh, provide for four key craft skills. And one of those craft skills is thinking strategically. And part of what we learn is that we tie our actions to driving the business. We have disciplines, craft skills dedicated to those. It's also encouraging the leaders to ask the right questions. What is this going to drive? Could you share the other three skills or is that too proprietary? The four marketing and communications craft skills are strategic thinker, 
compelling communicator, tech forward, and analytical mindset. All four of those lead you to understanding how your actions drive the business. In particular, analytical mindset and strategic thinker are the two that truly bank against are my actions driving the business. And you recruit for those. And when your people are hired, they're evaluated on those when they have their performance discussions. So it is embedded in how you, how you promote and how you train and how you upskill. Yeah, that's the goal. Uh, that is the declared goal. Do we do it all the time? No, but we're trying to. And in fact, this year we declared that in our goal system that every single one of our marketers and communicators would have the one craft skill that they're working on. So they're not boiling the ocean, but they're saying, hey, I want to be more tech forward. So I'm used, taking advantage of our marketing technology. So we have them put that in their goal. 100% of our marketers and communicators have that goal. I want to ask you an industry question. Why in early 2022, is this still an issue for CMOs and marketing at large not to be business-driven and not, not to see marketing as a business driver and not to you know, link our marketing to the company's objectives and what they're trying to evolve to, business goals? I mean, we, we shouldn't be having these discussions, but we are because that's still not a reality. What do you think is going on and what can we do to change that? You know, Jim, I think about this all the time because if you've been doing this as long as we have, you've seen the arc of this story and it is unfortunate. I think we've done it to ourselves. My point of view is tech took off we had a lower performance funnel that all of a sudden was more diverse and rich than ever. Okay. We always had CRM, direct marketing, um, especially those who did any time in retail marketing. But then all of a sudden, a digital component came to it. And all of a sudden, it got very complex. That then taken with, hey, I used to do top of funnel brand work, breakthrough. I feel like we lost our way. And in trying to take on the bottom of the funnel, the tech-driven, personalized, go-to-market activity, we stopped remembering the fundamentals that live no matter where you are in the purchase funnel, whether you're doing brand building work or bottom of the funnel, hardcore acquisition performance work. We, we just lost our way. All of these things exist, but the fundamentals of what we're doing and um, a great go-to-market approach remain, and those are to drive the business. So that is my belief. I think we can get back there, but I do think we have to assemble as a functional craft industry and get it done. What's your counsel to other CMOs to be business-driven CMOs versus, I don't know, ad-driven or marketing-driven CMOs? (laughs) If you want your shelf life to last, make sure you know what's driving your business. Um, There's a audience and a credibility you're going to get at the C-suite table when you know the business. Um, By the way, it doesn't mean that you can't do breakthrough, incredibly creative work. In fact, I would argue you have to. But if you do not know the business, 
you're not going to get that audience. You're not going to gain credibility and your shelf life isn't going to last very long. I agree with that. Totally. I mean, cr creativity is there to drive the business as a means to an end. I want to talk about your purpose. You brought it up a couple of times so far in the podcast, Powering Prosperity. I think you are one of the most amazing case studies on, on having a purpose that is authentic to you and your category. And you sure seem to bring it to life across your organization in people's daily work. So I would like you to go into that a bit for us, Lara. What Tell us about your purpose. You've already stated it a few times, but say it again and give us a little bit of context for it. And how you and your team over the years have made it such a driver of growth and this special culture into it. Yeah. So the purpose is powering prosperity around the world. We mean it. <laughs> we, mm -hmm. Every single state of the company, we show the slide, we talk about it, we unpack it. And we say it is for our customers, not only our current customers, but our prospective customers, but also for those who need it most. And so those who are perhaps born into a zip code that they don't get the same opportunity because our brand belief from that is everyone should have the opportunity to prosper. Everyone. Um, that, by the way, is the underpinning to DEI because it shouldn't matter the color of your skin, your sexual orientation, any of that. I will tell you, we've said it and where it really came to life for me is when COVID-19 hit. And you could see how not only was it accretive to our everyday, we're going to keep going and, and the steadfast nature of how we think about our roles and into it, but also ultimately helping our customers and then being good for the business. Um, when COVID-19 hit, the CARES package came out. And immediately we said, how can we help our customers? We did stimulus checks through TurboTax. We did PPP funding through QuickBooks. We had a free tool called Intuit Aid Assist where you could go on, took the 300 pages from the CARE Act, took them down to you fill out a couple forms and understand for free what are you able to get as somebody in need. And and of course, we donated, you know, to every organization supporting in the COVID-19 effort. But it was seeing that effort across our entire platform that was 100% anchored on powering prosperity around the world, right in the bullseye and all for good, but ended up, you know, ultimately you had people then saying, I'm going to start a small business. I lost my job, but I'm going to start a small business and I'm going to use QuickBooks. Hey, I really appreciate that we got my stimulus funding came through TurboTax. And you know what? When I get that check, I'm going to do my taxes in the future there. So the idea that um, doing good and, and business is an end, not an or, we see that every single day. And COVID-19 would be just a perfect example where those two things came together. What could we learn from your leadership team in guiding this purpose in the company? Because it sure seems to me in your marketing efforts, your acquisitions, your philanthropy, everything you do is anchored in this purpose. The coherence is pretty amazing. So what is it about how you lead at the top of the company that drives this coherence, which has driven such great results? We are constantly reminding ourselves why we're here. 
<laughs> Why are we here? We are powering prosperity around the world. First, we care about our employees who need to be inspired to be able to do that. And then we support our customers in achieving what they never thought was possible, starting a business, uh, you know, getting every single dollar back on their tax refund, knowing that they can save and save for a future better life. That every single state of the company, we say it and we say it again. Um, every town hall, we map back to it. And we do have a lot of forums where we allow for question and answer across the entire entire company. And we always take the time to unpack the context on why we do things. And most often that leads you right back to pairing prosperity around the world. That's why we're here. It all seems to be going well. What challenges do you have in bringing this purpose to life in daily work and, and seeing the results? Yeah, I think we have grown quickly. So we, we've grown quickly. We, we acquired two big companies on our journey that have only complemented what we're doing. Whenever, though, you're growing at the pace we are and we still want to move with speed and velocity, that's inherent to growth. It's inherent to serving your customers. It's inherent to surviving in today's tech-driven world. Uh, you know, you often... You often um, think, gosh, am I getting two steps ahead and not bringing everybody along? Um, where am I potentially taking too much time when I bring people along? And so that is always the tension because we're always trying to move with velocity and speed, but you want to bring people along. Um, and I, I think the, the biggest challenge is how do you keep velocity and speed but take your entire company of now 14,000 plus employees and bring them along. How do you know you're making progress? How do you measure progress against your purpose? We actually have community goals in our True North goals. So we have our corporate responsibility goals that are around job creation, job readiness, climate. We have DEI goals when it comes to the profile of our employee base. So we measure what we expect. We inspect what we measure. And we also measure speed. We actually have added speed and velocity metrics. How often are we releasing code? Developer speed. So that has been an added piece of how we measure our success. So you're, you have that mission. You have your purpose. But the how, so that's the what, but the how is measured as well. Laura, let's spend a moment on the career that has brought you to Intuit. You've worked for some of the most iconic brands in the world, Gap, Nike, Visa, Amazon. I mean, wow. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a who's who. So I, I'd like you to talk about which of these experiences shaped how you approach your work today. Well, every single one of them. Uh, there, you can't... Um you can't not be affected by anywhere you've worked and you mm -hmm. will always take the good and the bad and then choose what you want to deploy in your next job. Gosh, I, Nike, I learned the importance of a brand, a lifestyle brand and being irreverent when you need to be to, to break through, to drive mm -hmm. the business, but to mm -hmm. break through. Uh, Visa, I learned 
how to stay relevant when the world is going digital and you are a traditional company, legacy company. And at that point, I was learning how to drive the change and, and driving the change, leading from the front, because we were going to be obsolete if we didn't move. Uh, with, with Amazon, it's a PhD in how to move with speed, how to move with velocity, how to learn and live by their leadership principles, which are real, and in some ways, unlearn what you've learned to think differently. And then with Intuit, it's been a PhD in leadership. I've, the, the company and leading through change, leading for growth, that has been invaluable. Could you point to a leader or two who's had a large influence on you on this, in this career journey? You know, Antonio Lucio is going to always come up in, in your conversations around this for those of us who have the chance to work with or for him. Who was your boss at Visa? Yes. Yeah. You know, he came into a really interesting situation at Visa. We were disparate operating regions around the globe. Uh, we had only operated through a license agreement, if you could believe it. And then in 2008, we went public. And I had the great fortune of being on that journey when he came in. And we said, we're going to be one visa, one visa. And he had to take disparate marketing and comms leadership teams and bring them together to create a non-siloed singular brand that we would go to market with. And Jim, I think you came and talked to us um, yeah, about I think this. I, did. I think this is when we first met. Yep. And look, it wasn't without its but faults, but it was a masterclass in navigating very different regions, different personalities, different styles who had never worked together uh, to, to have us all get in a boat and row in the same direction. Um, so Antonio Lucio, absolutely a masterclass. You know, now he's a masterclass in DEI. So any marketer, I'd encourage them to look at what he has published in this regard, what he's doing. He's truly charting the future for us. You know, I've learned a ton from my CEO in, in uh, my time at Intuit. He has demonstrated in spades what it's like to move with speed while still listening and learning and uh, being inspired what's happening on the outside, but not um, looking too long that you don't look internally and move the ball down the court. He is incredibly intentional with his time. And he reminds us all to be intentional that there's only so many hours in a day. So work on what's going to matter and what's going to make the impact. So Sasan Gadarzi is another one. We've all been there. You spend millions of dollars each year driving traffic to your company's website, and then the results come in and they're just not what you hoped. On top of that, 81% of marketing leaders say website ownership is a challenge. So what do you do? Well, you switch to Webflow. Let me tell you why. Webflow's visual first platform empowers your team to own your company's most valuable dynamic marketing asset, your website. From launching a new site to optimizing for SEO and conversions, Webflow gives you the tools you need to drive business growth fast. 
Unlock your website's full potential when you build, manage, and host with Webflow. Get started today at webflow.com. I want to move to the creative brief to wrap up this wonderful discussion. And my first question is, one of your first jobs was at Profit, the consultancy that Professor Scott Galloway founded. Yes. And I want, you, I want to know, was he as smart, as spot on, as outrageous back then as he is? I'm, by the way, I'm a big fan. He has come in to speak to many of my classes at the Cannes Festival. I'm a regular listener to his podcast, which I think is just terrific. So what was he like way back then? You know, so I did not work at Profit very long. This is one of these stories in uh, resilience. I, when I graduated <laughs> from business school, I went to Profit and it was during the dot-com pink slip party time. And I was there for a short time, learned a ton, was a sponge. Scott was not around as much because he was doing startups. He had started the company and sort of moved on. David Ocker was around. um, And so you get the, you know, talk about learning from leaders. I got the 101 on all things brand architecture, uh, brand related But Scott was known to be irreverent and to push the dial and not be afraid to have a point of view. And he still is. I listened to his podcasts and I I ran into him at Cannes and I said, Scott, (laughs) you know, I worked at Profit and um, he was more than uh, cordial. And we had a laugh about how he's just gone on to do really great things. And whether you agree with him or not, you can agree that, you know, he he has a strong point of view. You were a pre-law student at University of Washington, what changed your mind to go into business? Or was that always the plan? Oh, here's another lesson on grit and resiliency. You know, I I graduated pre-law and I graduated right into a recession. (laughs) No jobs. I was, you know, graduating with honors and couldn't get a job. I had taken criminology courses through the pre-law degree that University of Washington offered. And they were so fascinating about what drives human behavior, what drives somebody to commit a crime versus somebody else. And I thought, that's so interesting. But really what that is, is human behavior. And what that is, is marketing. How do you take a current think and make it a future think, a current do and make it a future do? Everything we do as marketers. And that drove me to marketing. I could not get a job. And so I volunteered my time at Pike Place Market helping to bring local residents in because the tourist population had fall, fallen off because it, it, was a, um, it was a recession. And that was my foray into marketing, was volunteering my time with a pre-law degree because I couldn't get a job. And what was the first job you got? I was actually a um, marketing assistant of a shopping mall. Hey, that's a good start. Yeah, if you're, great If you're start. interested in consumer behavior and lots of different brands and dynamics. But kind of crazy to think. I mean, it was a slow start to my career. That was, you know, it, it was a, a, a lesson in grit and resilience. There weren't a lot of jobs. There was a tiny little company in, called Microsoft in the Seattle area. I was living in the Seattle area, but it sounded really boring and nobody knew what it was. So nobody looked at it. and. Who knew? But yeah, shopping mall ended up being a great foray into consumer behavior, which is what it parlayed into. What did you learn in that first job? Grit and resilience. I often tell teams, you can be the smartest person in the room, but it does not matter if you 
are not going to have grit and resilience and, and push your way through hard times because there will be hard times. And the smartest person is not going to make a difference when um, your sales go off the cliff and we're not really sure why and how do we band together and collectively work to, to drive toward a better future. Who has been the most inspiring person in your life? Lots of people. The most inspiring relative I have is my aunt was one of the first women in Congress. And it was at a time where women were not in Congress. Thank goodness that has changed to a degree. Uh, but she really put her neck out. She was in Congress for 24 years and helped pass the Family Medical Leave Act. And she made quite a difference despite a lot of people not believing in a lot of what she stood for at the time. Wow. Do you remember any advice or counsel or one-liners she gave to you as you were growing up and developing as your own person and leader? Yes. Uh, don't believe everything you hear <laughs> and laugh with them. Um, laugh with them, even if you disagree with them. Good advice. So, Laura, any New Year's resolutions? I don't like New Year's resolutions. I think it goes back to what I was telling you. Our CEO, Sasan Ghadarzi, always talks about being intentional with your time. If you truly are intentional with your time, you're evaluating it and reevaluating it constantly, and you shouldn't do that at the start of every year. Um, it's a constant daily exercise and muscle that you're building. So I do not have any New Year's resolutions. This has been a great chat. You're a great inspiration. Your company is a great inspiration. And keep it up. Thank you. I really appreciate that. And uh, those are huge words coming from you, Jim. Thank you for all you, you do for us as an industry. We really appreciate it. That was my conversation with Laura Balash. Three takeaways from this one for your business and life. First takeaway having clarity on your company's strategy. Laura talked about the five big bets that Intuit makes and how that's thought about deeply, aligned across the entire company, and it guides all actions, including acquisitions. Second takeaway, this was a lesson in prioritization. Having clear priorities is a big opportunity for most senior marketing people. Laura talked about how she chooses her priorities very carefully. There are no more than five, and she intentionally decides what percentage of her time she will spend on those priorities, and she keeps them on her computer in front of her day in and day out. Third takeaway, how to live your purpose. Intuit has a powerful purpose that is rooted in its brand history and its category, and they live it day in and day out. One great example is how they responded to COVID-19 and helping people across the country take advantage of some of the resources available to them and to continue to prosper in their life during those difficult times. That's it for this episode of the CMO Podcast. If you found this helpful and entertaining, I would be so grateful if you could share our show with your friends. And I would be super happy if you subscribed so you can be updated as we publish new episodes. And if you really want to help, leave us a five-star rating and a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. The CMO Podcast is a Gallery Media Group original production.